Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you would please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. On the Christian church calendar, today is traditionally called Palm Sunday. It's called this because of what is recorded here in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. It's also recorded in Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Most Bible translations place a heading above this passage uh, entitled, The Triumphal Entry. This is because... Uh, It is seen by Christians as Jesus returning to the capital city of Jerusalem to claim it as his own. Please follow along with me as I read uh, verses 1 through 11 in Matthew 21, and then I'll make a couple comments afterwards. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now in the first century world, uh, if a king intended to declare war on a foreign nation, he would ride into the capital city on a horse. If his intent was instead to come in peace, he would ride into the capital city on a donkey. The word colt uh, does not refer to a horse, as most of us have heard heard it used today in the 21st century in American culture. Instead, it was a female donkey and her foal, a baby donkey. It's likely that Jesus took turns riding on each animal on the journey into Jerusalem. Another custom from the first century that we see here in Matthew 21 is the spreading of cloaks and palm branches on the road. This was often done in order to, uh, it was done by the host city as a custom to pay homage or honor to the visiting king. Thus the name Palm Sunday. The chanting of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quote from Psalm 118. 
the word Hosanna in the Hebrew of Psalm 118 means save us, save us, help us. It's a, it's a request for rescue. Palm Sunday is a significant turning point in the Gospels because it marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It launches what's called the Passion Week. And over the next seven days, Jesus will impart his final instructions to his disciples. He will institute the Lord's Supper, be arrested, put through a sham trial, be crucified on Good Friday, buried in a cave, and then resurrect himself on Easter Sunday. Now, because we will not be doing a Good Friday service this year, I thought it would be a good idea to show you this Palm Sunday text to give you some context to help you understand the significance of this time of year. And then I thought it would be good to preach a message today that I would normally preach on Good Friday. You may have already noticed the cross theme and the songs that we just sang. And they were all great songs. I love them and appreciate them so much. And so I want to share a message with you today from Colossians chapter 2 on the centrality of the cross. It's my hope that this message will sort of be a springboard or a launching pad for you to have a more thoughtful, more worshipful week this coming week leading up to Easter. And so if you haven't already, if you would turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you haven't already done so, pull out the sermon notes that you received when you came in this morning. Uh, and as you do so, and you fire up your pen and get ready to take diligent notes, uh, let me just give you some background on the cross and crucifixion and what happened on Good Friday to the Lord Jesus. What many Christians don't know is that the cross was not always the icon of our faith, as it is today. In the first century, the cross was not used as a universal symbol for the Christian faith, in part because of the intense persecution that the church was under, and in part because of what the cross stood for at the time. It was the most horrific form of punishment for criminals in the ancient world. That's hard for us to grasp because we live in a culture and in an age where capital punishment is not, uh, it's not displayed front and center for us on TV. Uh, it's, it's done behind the scenes, kind of in private. And even so, today it's, it's more, in our country, uh, uh, lethal injection or electric chair. But in those days, back in the first century, in the days of the Roman Empire, capital punishment was done in public, front and center, maybe in the center of town, or maybe on a, on a local mountain or hill where everybody could see so that a message was sent to the rest of the population that, hey, if you do what this guy did, this will be you. It was meant to be an example to instill fear in people. Historians believe crucifixion was invented by barbarians who lived on the edge of the civilized world back then, before the birth of Christ, and that it was then adopted and perfected by the Romans. Criminals who were sentenced to crucifixion were first flogged with a whip that had animal bones, teeth, and pieces of metal on it in order to tear the flesh off his or her back. It was designed to weaken the prisoner 
so that they would be easier to nail onto the cross. Next, the prisoner was forced to carry the crossbar, excuse me, the crossbar for their cross on their shoulders through the city to their execution site with an escort of Roman soldiers. Once at the public execution site, the prisoner's wrists and ankles were nailed to the stake and the crossbar. A sign with the prisoner's name and the crime that they were accused of was mounted above their head for the entire community to see. The most common cause of death on a cross was loss of blood or asphyxiation. This is because hanging on a cross, uh, suspended by your appendages, put a tremendous amount of pressure on the diaphragm, making it difficult to breathe. And so in order for a prisoner to take a breath, uh, he or she would have to push up with their feet and legs to take a breath, and then the weight of their body would pull them back down again. Some victims would take a few days to die, while other times Roman soldiers would break the legs of their victims in order to speed up the death process because they were tired of waiting on them. They had other people to crucify, so they needed to get this guy off the cross because we got a line of criminals, we got to put another one up there. The primary goal of crucifixion, ironically, was not to kill the prisoner. It was actually to delay death and to torture him or her so bad that they would long for death with every broken bone in their body. The Romans used crucifixion for foreigners or slaves who were found guilty of murder, armed robbery, or insurrection. However, one privilege of Roman citizenship was being exempt from crucifixion, except in rare cases of treason. What this means is that even the Romans, even the Romans realized how sadistic crucifixion was that they built it, they wrote it into their constitution that anybody who was a Roman citizen would not be subjected to it. That was one of the privileges of being a Roman citizen. To the Jews, it was so inhumane that they could not fathom how the prophesied Messiah they had been waiting to arrive for so long would subject himself to that kind of humiliation. Therefore, the fact that every Christian, excuse me, the fact that the early Christians chose the cross, it's believed by historians in the second century to be the universal symbol of our faith, it says one thing loud and clear. That is that they never wanted to forget the sacrifice that Jesus made or the suffering he endured for them. The Apostle Paul, he didn't want the church in Colossae to forget either. And neither should we. And this is why he penned the verses we're going to look at today in Colossians chapter 2. Our big idea for today is this, the sermon in a sentence, the singular truth that I hope we can take away today is that the cross reminds us of God's perfect love for us and his profound hatred of sin. The cross reminds us of God's perfect love for us and his profound hatred 
of sin, of our sin. The book of Colossians is a prison epistle that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. That church was gathering in that city about 100 miles east of Ephesus in Asia Minor. Like most New Testament churches, Colossae was under assault from false teachers, intent on leading astray as many believers as they could. And one such false doctrine that was creeping into the church was legalism. Now, that term is thrown around uh, by different people. In fact, I was just remembering last night how I threw the term around when I was in college, not knowing what it meant. Some people throw the legalism flag as soon as they're corrected with a verse of Scripture. And they view it as anything that keeps me from doing what I want. But that's actually not true. So here's a definition for you to write down. This is what Paul was trying to address in the three verses we're going to look at this morning. Legalism is a false doctrine that says you must earn your salvation through good works or by following extra-biblical rules. Legalism is a false doctrine that says you must earn your salvation through good works or by following extra-biblical rules. It's false because it contradicts the clear teaching in Scripture that eternal salvation is provided by grace alone through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Legalism wrongly assumes we can achieve the perfection required by a holy God to earn our own salvation. It also incorrectly suggests that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not enough, that it wasn't sufficient, that more is needed in order for us to have salvation. And so Paul wisely addresses this problem by simply taking the Colossians back to the foot of the cross. And he does so in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. If you would follow along with me as I read. The apostle writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, in these three verses, the apostle highlights three ways in which the cross removed the burden of legalism. And here's the first point in your outline. The first way the cross solves the legalism problem, that is, the cross made our resurrection possible. The cross made our resurrection possible. Paul says in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses. So he begins by telling the Colossian believers who they used to be, so they can realize who they are now in Christ. Just like zombies in a horror movie who look dead on the outside but are alive on the inside, unbelievers look alive on the outside but are dead on the inside. 
spiritually dead. They have no spiritual life in them. His metaphor of being brought from death to life is not only appropriate, but also very effective. Just as physically dead people are unable to respond to stimuli, you know, you got, if, if there's a corpse sitting in front of you and you, you can kick it and do it, and it just it won't it won't respond, it won't move. Well, in the same way, spiritually dead people are unable to respond to the stimulus of the Holy Spirit. Just as a physically dead person is unable to communicate or to talk to you, to tell them how they died or where they hurt. Spiritually dead people are unable to communicate with God. And just as physically dead people are unable to walk, to move under their own power, in the same way, spiritually dead people are unable to and unwilling to walk with God. They can't walk with God because they're dead. And just as physically dead people have no appetite for food, can't digest food anymore, Spiritually dead people have no hunger for spiritual things, no hunger for the Word of God, no desire to pray. Now, this used to be some of you before you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. And sadly, it is still some of you who have not yet made that life-changing decision. Now, the list I just read off comparing the physically dead and the spiritually dead is also how you can tell whether someone has truly been saved or not. Those who have genuinely, excuse me, genuinely been born again, they will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They will desire to spend time with God. They will hunger to know His Word. They will walk with the Lord and have a hunger for more spiritual things. Now, for the Colossian believers, Paul is saying, that was then, but this is now. This is what God's done for you through Christ on the cross. When the Lord makes an unbeliever become spiritually alive through the work of the Holy Spirit, that person not only experiences an internal resurrection, but they also will experience an external one in the future. And if you're curious about this, this is talked about in... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul also says in Romans 6 verse 5, For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so that is one of the great hopes of the Christian faith. And so what this means is that the true believer must not only confess on that cross, Jesus died for me, but also the true believer must confess on that cross, I died with him. The first delivers us from sin's condemnation, but the second delivers us from sin's power. And so we need to be on the cross with him. That's why the cross reminds us of God's perfect love for us and his profound hatred of sin. 
Next, uh, number two on your outline, the second thing that Paul reminds the Colossians about the cross and was reminding us of, and that is that the cross made our debt reconcilable. It made our debt reconcilable. For the born-again Christian, the cross means, as you see it there in your Bible in verse 13, the second half of verse 13, it means you've been forgiven of all your trespasses. Now the word forgiven in this verse is derived from the Greek word charizomai. It means to graciously pardon. It means we don't deserve the pardon. We're definitely guilty of all the things that God's accused us of. It reinforces our inexcusable guilt before God in rebelling against Him. But we didn't just rebel one time. Notice trespasses is plural. We've all rebelled countless times against the Lord. And so how did the Lord forgive all of our trespasses? Well, we could not go back in time. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you could just go back in time and replace, get a mulligan? You know, just replace all of your sins with righteous choices? Or maybe, if, wouldn't it be nice if God could just forget that you ever sinned? But no, He can't do that because He's omniscient, which means He's all-knowing. And we can't go back and replace our sins with righteous decisions because time travel is not possible. And so the Lord couldn't pretend our sins never happened. So what did he do? Well, the answer is in verse 14. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. The word record here is important to notice. The NIV translates it as charge, which I think falls short of what the apostle is describing here in the original text. Record comes from the, the Greek word chirographon. Uh, which means a handwritten document or certificate of debt. What Paul is essentially describing is what we would call today an IOU. An IOU, as uh, most of you are aware, is an informal signed note that acknowledges some kind of debt, like I owe you some toothpaste, roommate, or... Uh, I owe you some milk because I finished all the milk in the refrigerator, spouse. Uh, or uh, I owe you some Halloween candy, sister, because I took some of yours. What Paul is saying is that every time we lied to our parents or stayed out past curfew or cheated on a test or lied on our taxes or had a lustful thought or made a selfish decision or lost our temper or use foul language, or hurt someone with our careless words, or bragged about our accomplishments, or drank too much alcohol, or skipped church because we wanted to stay home and sleep in. All those things. We were writing IOUs to God, racking up debt, saying, I'll make it up later, God, with some better behavior. I'll, I'll pay it off later. But we couldn't. Because the debt was too big. See, we are all, every one of us, including myself, spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. And therefore, our only hope and the only solution was God taking all the IOUs that we had written them over the years with our sins 
and nailing them to the cross above his son's head. Some commentators think Paul may be referring to the common practice done by the Romans of nailing the charges above a criminal on the cross. But therefore, in the words of the famous 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards, you and I contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The cross reminds us of God's perfect love for us and his profound hatred of sin. Here's the third thing that Paul tells the Colossians about the cross that he reminds them of. It's so important. Number three, the cross made our victory perennial. The cross made our victory perennial. It made our resurrection possible. It made our debt reconcilable. And it made our victory perennial. Perennial, of course, means long-lasting or infinite or continually occurring. In sports, the word is used to describe a team that has been winning for so long that it's hard to remember the last time they lost. Notice in verse 15 how, how Jesus uh, accomplished this victory, this perennial victory for us. It says he disarmed. Paul paints a very vivid word picture here of Jesus' final accomplishment on the cross. The word for disarmed in the original text literally means to, to put off or to strip clothes off of someone. However, the apostle liked to use this word metaphorically in a couple other places in the New Testament to describe the stripping of power. So who was stripped of power? Who did, who did he disarm? Well, it's there in verse 15. The rulers and authorities. This is a reference to the adversary and his legion of demons that were working behind the scenes to influence the Jewish rulers and the Roman Empire to crucify Jesus. In 1974, the Republic of Congo hosted uh, one of the most famous boxing matches of all time. It was called the Rumble in the Jungle. It featured the undefeated 25-year-old heavyweight champion of the world, George Foreman. Yes, the George Foreman who made the grill. And he was going up against the 32-year-old former champ, Muhammad Ali. Ali was a 4-to-1 underdog, but won the fight by using a new strategy he called rope-a-dope. The strategy started early in the fight, and it's where Ali allowed Foreman to pin him against the rope so Foreman could exhaust himself unloading Countless body blows while Ali would 
withstand the blows with a defensive posture, protecting his body with his arms, but also part of the strategy was being up against the ropes allowed the ropes to absorb some of the energy from the blows. So his body didn't take all of the, of the, of the punches. The strategy worked because it not only led Foreman to believe that he was winning, well, it also sapped his energy that he would need in the later rounds. And so in the end, Ali won, I believe, in the eighth round by knockout, reclaiming his title as heavyweight champion of the world. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the greatest rope-a-dope of all time. Why? Because it caused Satan, his demons, the Jewish and Roman authorities all to believe that they had won, that they had defeated Jesus by nailing him on the cross. However, his sacrifice on the cross was actually a great victory. His sacrifice turned tragedy into triumph, defeat into dominance, death into life, and it made it possible for sinners to become saints. And so what appeared to be a great victory for the enemy was actually a loss, a devastating loss, an eternal, perennial, long-lasting loss, and a great victory for the Lord. Now, that's a good place for you to say amen if you haven't said amen in a while, by the way. So what does this mean? It means, it means that those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for their eternal salvation are no longer in bondage to their sin or under Satan's control. It means our two greatest enemies on this earth have been defeated for us, and that is our sin and Satan who tempts us to sin. Defeated. Finished. And so, the cross made our victory perennial. But what do we do with this now? Well, here's two applications that come to mind. And again, the Lord may give you another one, and if he does, I want to encourage you to write that down. But here's a couple that I hope will stimulate your thinking. Applications are simply, what must I do now that I've heard this truth? How do I put it into action in my life? Well, the first that comes to mind is to put off the burden of perfectionism. To put off the burden of perfectionism. There are many people, unbelievers and believers alike, who are striving to be perfect who don't even realize they're doing it. One way you can tell is if, is if you point out a mistake they made or you correct them and they go, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that great revelation. You can tell they're striving for perfection when they're just crushed by criticism or failure. Or maybe a, a B on a test instead of an A. Or a project they were working on coming out less than perfect. And it devastating them. 
or becoming very angry in some other effort or endeavor where perfection was not achieved. Now, it's illogical, and I know unbiblical, and you would agree with me, but there are still many unbelievers and believers who think they can earn their salvation by being good enough. And please hear me say this in love. You will never be good enough. You can't be. It's not possible because because good enough to God is perfection. Zero sin, ever. Keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly for your entire life. And nobody can do that. So just stop trying. Admit today, I can't do it, Lord. And I'm tired of trying. Now, on the other hand, there are professing believers who distort the doctrines of God's grace and substitutionary atonement to justify continuing to live in sin. And that's bad, too. However, the New Testament teaches that if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you should want to follow Him. You should want to worship Him. You should want to be like Him. Not under your own power, by the way, but in the strength of His grace, 2 Timothy 2.2, and in by the empowerment of His Spirit, Ephesians 3.16. And so when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you desire to walk with Him, you desire to put off sin and become more like Him, and doing so is not a burden, it's a great joy. However, to be frank, If you don't know Christ and you try to be like him, you try to put off your own sin and your own power, or to use Paul's phrase from Philippians 3, putting confidence in your flesh, it will be a burden. You will be burned out. You will get discouraged. You will be frustrated because you're trying to earn your salvation. And it can't be done. So put off the burden of perfectionism. Next, the second application that comes to mind is to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Daily. I know no other way to explain this better than Jerry Bridges did in his wonderful book called The Discipline of Grace. I would highly recommend Bridges' book to you, The Discipline of Grace. In this book, Bridges says, To preach the gospel to yourself, then, means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate, again by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, And that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. If you do this enough times, no one will ever be able to sneak a false gospel by you. Because you will know the true gospel so well. And if you do this enough times... You will look forward to spending time with the Lord in your daily devotions throughout the week. 
If you do this enough times, preaching the gospel to yourself, you will look forward to coming to church on Sunday mornings here, no matter the weather, no matter how many people show up, no matter how late you were up last night, you will look forward to it because you realize it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. And it was Jesus who was willing to take on all the debt that you had accrued with your sins and your rebellion so that you could be free from that sin, free from the shame that it brought, free from the guilt, free from the burden of owning or uh, uh, having to earn your own salvation, forgiving you and giving you the gift of eternal life. You see, when you do that, when you preach the gospel to yourself daily, you sing loud no matter how many people are in the room. And when the, when the projection slides are delayed or there's a missing lyric slide, you make up your own lyrics to the song. Gospel-centered ones, of course. So, put off the burden of perfectionism and preach the gospel to yourself daily. There's a man who, who did this very well that I want to introduce you to as we close. His name was David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a, an American missionary to Native Americans in the Northeast during the 18th century. He had a fascinating short life. The Lord used him to lead hundreds of Indians to faith in Christ. Despite only being a missionary the last four years of his life and only being a Christ follower, the final eight years before he eventually succumbed to tuberculosis, which he had suffered for seven to eight years as well. He died at the age of 29. In his journal, Brainerd recorded these insights about the cross and what Jesus did for us there. He writes, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people, meaning the Indians he ministered to, when they were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and Him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ in Him crucified. May this be true of us as well. May we realize who Jesus really is and what He has generously done for us so much so that we are changed from the inside out instead of trying to change from the outside in. May we pursue holiness, not because it earns us salvation, but because we no longer want to hurt the one who paid our debt for us. That's why the cross reminds us of God's perfect love for us and his profound hatred for our sin. Would you join me as we close in prayer? 
We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.